turn. And uh, we thought before we just kind of dive in and start talking, um, we're not going to assume that you know, um, you know who, who we are or why we're up here doing this session. Um, the second part of that question, we still don't know, but the first part we could maybe try to answer. So my, I'll go first. I'm Glenn. Um, I've been at New Life Church for uh, 14 years, which is kind of crazy to think about it. The church is coming up on its 30th birthday, so that's, that's almost half um, its life. Um, I grew up in Malaysia, uh, which is about as far as you can go on the other side of the world before you start coming back. And um, when I was 10, my family moved from Malaysia to America. My parents felt like the Lord was leading them to Bible school, so we lived in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, for three years. And then we moved back to Malaysia. I finished out my high school, came uh, to the States to go to college, went to a little school in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Oral Roberts University, uh, which was great. And crazy and great and good and weird and all that stuff. So, um, but I, I also made some great friends and, um, and among those friends is Aaron Stern and uh, he's older than me as you can obviously tell, but <laughs> obviously, obviously, um, but we had a lot of mutual friends. My old roommate is sitting in the back there, Nate McHenry. If you want to really know stories, I guess, you know, Nate, Nate's got them, but, um, I came to New Life in the summer of 2000, was an apprentice to Ross Parsley, who was the worship pastor here, and uh, halfway through that year, they offered it, they turned it into a staff position, and so I, I, I basically worked with the worship ministry, helped to lead on Sunday, uh, Sunday mornings, uh, and then also for a college ministry that Aaron started here at New Life called The Mill, and I'll let him talk about that, but that's how we got to really be friends as we worked together at The Mill for so many years. Um, I helped to start something we called the New Life School of Worship. Um, I was just chatting up here with one of the alums um, when the New Life School of Worship was a standalone kind of thing. And then something began to happen in me in 2009. I went on our first sabbatical, as Brady mentioned. You know, everyone had been here seven years or more, so I was a little bit late, nine years in. But um, went on our, our sabbatical and came back, and my wife and I both felt this just this strong sense from the Lord that it was time to make the transition away from um, worship and, and music being the primary way of, of doing ministry and to, to move more into teaching and pastoral work. And so I went to Pastor Brady and talked to him about that, and he was very affirming, very encouraging about that, but also very wise in saying, well, you know, you, you haven't really any, led anything uh, as that in that spot before. So instead of just going to go plant a church, why don't you start a Sunday night service? So that's what we did. We started a Sunday night service in the fall of 2009, and we began to experiment with it where it wasn't a clone, wasn't a carbon copy of Sunday morning. Uh, it was allowed to be very different, to have its own culture. We're, we're going to revisit that theme a bit today. I just, I'm telling you this so you'll know a little bit of where I'm, I'm coming from. And so we would, Brady and I would, would preach the same, um, generally the same texts, uh, the same sort of big idea of the sermon, but we'd have our own outlines. Um, and, and meanwhile, create kind of different cultures, but overlapping cultures. After two years or, or two and a half years of that, um, we felt like the Lord was saying, this needs to become something in another part of the city. And so it became New Life Downtown. Uh, Easter Sunday of 2012, we launched New Life Downtown, um, which is not a church plant. But neither is it a campus. You know, if you know the campus model or the multi-site model, it's really not, not that. Um, and I'll just say just 30 seconds about what it is. I think what it is is um, we centralize our administrative functions, like HR and accounting, so we don't have to replicate that. 
We localize the pastoral ministry so that we can take care of the people that are right there. We can shape um, uh, the way we do ministry based on who's there. Um, and then we synergize, all these wonderful rhymy words, we synergize our, our, Sunday, uh, our Sunday services so that there are things that we feed off of each other. There are, there are things culturally that you would say are similar, and there are things that are unique um, based on our own context. So the perspective I'm bringing today, uh, hopeful, hope to bring, um, is really from the perspective of being in the midst of a church that is going through a cultural shift. And how do you do that? How do you navigate that? And how do you do that by leading up? Do you know what I'm saying by leading up? Like, you're not the lead chair. Um, I'm not the lead chair. I'm somewhere on the next tier down. But, but how does that work? How do you affect culture from within an organization um, that has changed? So that's the perspective I hope to be able to offer. Uh, so, Glenn, I, came, I grew up here at New Life. I first heard, uh, came to New Life when I was 12 and 60 years ago <laughs> and and I uh, aside from going away to college uh, went to Oral Roberts University is uh, just like Glenn and uh, lived in Tulsa for uh, five years after graduation got my master's in theology and um, and Glenn and I, I think kind of met each other we overlapped in terms of uh, well I well, we were both working there but really didn't know each other maybe knew of one another and I actually remember the day I was uh, helping with the college ministry. I hadn't yet taken it over at that point. And I said, hey, uh, I ran in on a Friday afternoon, I think, or Thursday. What are you doing tomorrow night? <laughs> and he had nothing going on. Single, had nothing going on. <laughs> Very depressed. And, and I said, hey, you want to lead worship? And he led worship the next night for the college ministry. And uh, basically the rest was history because... A couple of months later, I did end up taking over, and uh, and he was, thankfully, it was early on, so he didn't have anything else going on, and so <laughs> it's just kind of first in line, really, and and Glenn uh, led worship for the next nine years, and uh, over the course of those that time, and it was really wonderful. My wife, Jossie, and I have been married a little more than 19 years now, and uh, we have four boys, Parker, Cohen, Brooks, and Smith, say it nicely together, it just sounds like a beautiful architecture firm, firm yeah. you know it's so great so um and so do we have a picture oh, okay so, yeah um so their ages youngest five to 12 is the is the oldest so it's uh it's a lot of chaos in our house one just, a month ago we were, we've been in the er twice in the last two in the last month so you know that's kind of normal and uh but i i grew up here and then went away uh to college came back ended up starting uh, here and, and then ended up being the college pastor. And, and, and during that time, I, I mean, I loved it. I loved working with Glenn. It was a, it was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful journey. And honestly, uh, as most youth pastors and college pastors and maybe even associate pastors get asked on a, on a regular basis, like, so when are you going to get a, like a real job, you know, like, like really be a pastor, you know? And, and, and I said, you know, I really believe that I'm called to do this for the rest of my life. I, I think I'm going to be the oldest, coolest college pastor you've ever seen, and uh, and that was it's kind of the goal. And I was in the after a while in the college pastor world, I was a dinosaur, <laughs> and 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 I ended up doing that for 11 years because a few years ago um, the started having some stirrings from the Lord that that we were going to close the chapter of our lives that we were doing here in terms of leading college ministry and. Make a long story short, um, realized the Lord was calling us to 
not only leave here, but to uh, plant a new church. So we moved about three years ago, we moved to Fort Collins, Colorado, which is about two hours north of here, and planted Mill City Church, and we're about two and a half years old now. And so Glenn's going to talk about how to shape what's already kind of there and, and, and shift it and change it. And I'm going to start, I'm going to talk from the uh, place of starting something from scratch and starting from nothing. And so what does that look like and how do you go about doing that and embracing kind of uh, taking something out of the air and making it something? Uh, so, so that's kind of our, my perspective, but it's really fun to do this with Glenn um, and not only do we have our ministry history together, I think we also, um, we just, uh, Glenn is such a wonderful and close friend. So it's great to do this with you. Likewise, Aaron. Um, there's a lot I could say. I mean, one of the things about Aaron that he wouldn't say about himself is when he built the mill, I think um, he, he had one of the largest college ministries um, that, you know, I don't know, whatever, in the world, in, in the country, you know, but in the galaxy, um, <laughs> in the cosmos. Um, but, but, but part of the thing that Aaron does so well is Aaron creates culture so well. And uh, I, I think you should open with um, a little bit of your reflection on that. Well, you know, I, we're all in cities where there's more than one church. <laughs> and, and if you think about it, the vast majority of the churches do basically the same things. You know, you, they have some sort of service, and there generally is going to be preaching, uh, worship, announcements, <laughs> and some sort of community. I mean, that might look like small groups. It might look like Sunday school. It might look like a lot of different things. But in general, I would say that we could, we could say some of those are some of the main components. And yet, why does one church, why are people flocking to it, and why are others, maybe they're leaving it, and I would say that the answer to that is culture. That it's not just about having particular pieces. It's about the culture and the fabric that holds them all together. Mm. And, and I would suggest, maybe as just a launching point for this particular session, is to say that culture trumps just about everything. In other words, I was talking to a friend the other day, and he said, he said I think that... that uh, you can oftentimes maybe even do the wrong thing or maybe not do the, the, the thing that is the best thing, but if the culture's right, it will actually still work. Whereas, and it's not the goal to do the wrong thing, by the way, but, but, but the, and in the other context, you might do the right thing, but in the wrong culture, and it will die. Give an example of that, like, like a good vision, but an unhealthy culture. Yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of like, we'll use something that is very, that's not just similar, but actually even the same. Think about two different Groups, like we'll use small groups as an example. You have the same curriculum. You can have the same uh, format for the group. You can have the same, like, even the same opening icebreaker. And one group is thriving and full of life, and the other one is dying and sucks the life out of you. Mm -hmm. And so, so in some ways, what I want to talk about today and have us kind of come around and be thinking about is how do you create life-giving culture? How do you create a culture that breathes life into people? And one of the things that I, I think as being a church planter and starting, starting from scratch is, is, you know, we all get lots of different maybe feedback from different people throughout um, our wherever we're at in ministry. One of the things that I think is so interesting in terms of feedback from people as they come into our church and, and, they, and, they, and they, they say, 
I just love this place. And it's almost like they can't put their finger yeah, on it. Like, it yeah. It's not like, oh, your worship leader has such an amazing voice. You know, like, like that. I don't know. He does well, They have an said that voice. back in the mill days. But. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, and so it's like, because otherwise, if it was just about having an amazing voice for a worship pastor, then everybody would have an amazing voice and all, of, all churches would be flourishing and full of life. I oftentimes think that you can have even a great preacher and it still not necessarily be a life-giving church. So, so to go back then to the, to the small group model, you know, it's all the same material, but one has something in it that's like full of life and full of, of, of the spirit in some ways. And, and to be clear, when you say life-giving culture, that could, that could look like different styles even. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're, you're a great example of that. I mean, why don't you, can you give a, for anybody that doesn't know, like a little bit of a, a history on you and how confusing you are? <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the ways that New Life Downtown is different than, than New Life Maine um, is that we have a lot of elements from the liturgical tradition. Um, but it's not just because we're copying and pasting and we're, you know, just sort of d- dumping in some, some prayers. It's, it's part of, of, um, of how we're shaping culture. And I will say a bit more about that in, in the next workshop um, today. But, but I think your point is it's not about, you know, rock music or acoustic music or choir music. Or, I, mean, I mean, at some level it is if the people ha- have a sense of belonging, like this culture is my home, you know. And I think, I, I mean... Be, play the anthropologist for a little bit, you know, and when you go on a mission trip or when you go on a, on a vacation to a cross-cultural experience, uh, you enjoy it for the first week. You're the tourist. You're like, oh, this is so cool. This is so awesome. This is so great. And then after a while, you're like, man, could there be a little bit more water pressure in the shower, you know, like, or that's, that's not even culture. But let's, let's say it's something more cultural. Like, why doesn't anybody smile in France, you know? Um, how come, you know, how come, you know, or whatever it, may, it might be. Maybe that's like a cultural difference from New Jersey to Alabama or something, you know, like everybody says hello, you know. Um, and, 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 and in the end, there is a, a thing about culture that makes us feel, yeah, I belong. Like, this is, this is home. Um, do you want to say more about life-giving, or shall we? Um, I think maybe to even break this down into a very personal yeah. basis. You know, like, I th- obviously, um, it's, to flip it around, you know, we can say, well, a church is life-giving, but I also think we can talk about people being life-giving. Somebody who's life-giving walks into a church, and they love it all. I love this church. I love the pastor. I love the music. I love the worship. Somebody who's not life-giving. They walk in and the music is too loud and the songs are too long and the pastor's not exegeting the scripture correctly and, and the lobby's not set up correctly. And, and it's not to say that some of those things don't need to be dealt with or changed or worked on or tweaked or improved or whatever, but it has everything to do with how we as people embrace life and our life-giving. And I think in, if, in many ways we also have to talk about how as a leader are we life-giving. And so... So I think there's something about that personally, but then ways in which that expresses itself within the context of the community. Which is a perfect segue to zoom out just a little bit and say, so what is culture? We're going to throw around this word a lot. The workshop's called Creating Culture, but what is it, you know? 
Um, so here again, if we were to take our cues a little bit from the world of the social sciences, anthropology, and all, and say, what, what would you look at when you're studying a people group? What would you look at when you're studying, um, you know, a tribe in Papua New Guinea, or when you're, you're studying a different culture? I mean, there's several components, and there's probably a, a more extensive list than this, but here's a few things. For one, culture is shaped by stories, the stories we tell one another. Okay, so in a very primitive, primitive sense, you could imagine uh, a people group saying, the, this is the story of our tribe. This is the story of how, um, you know, our forefather found, um, uh, you know, discovered fire or whatever, okay? But, but forget that. Let's go with what we know. America. What are the stories we tell ourselves about America? And this is not to get into a sort of um, history discussion about revisionist history or whatever. This could derail very quickly, okay? But just follow me for this one angle. The way that you narrate American history is the way that you shape America's culture, right? So part of how we narrate America's story is that we are a people of pioneers. <laughs> we are people that are not afraid of the unknown. We are people that we would rather face the dangers of the unknown than to live with the boredom and the tyranny of the known. Right? That's how we narrate our story as Americans. And so we, we, anything that hints at restricting our freedom, even if it's sensible to the rest of the world. I mean, you can't imagine the conversations that, you, know, you have with people from, from the UK or from Europe who are like, what is with you Americans and you know, your guns? You know? Like, ah, you see, you've got to get how this is deeply embedded in our culture because it's part of the story that we narrate to one another that there were these militia. And so we sort of believe that in a citizen militia thing and, and they're like looking at you like, you're not about to be invaded by like, anyway, whatever, right? But it's how does something get deeply embedded because of the stories we repeatedly tell? And church is a similar way. So, so Aaron's in this place where a new church plant they're narrating to each other over and over again the story of how it began. How Aaron, probably most people on your team, if not everyone on your team, knows the story of how you and Jossie heard the Lord's call to Fort Collins. They, they all know that story. They probably, they probably have their own stories. Of, I remember the first interest meeting that he held at that hotel. I was there. Were you there? You, yeah. There's stories that you begin to tell one another. Those things matter. Those things matter. The second uh, component of what culture is is rituals. Now, you think of rituals as like, you know, uh, you know, dancing around a fire with one leg or whatever, right? But, but every, everything that becomes sticky as culture has a ritual. Being a Bronco fan has a ritual. You know, there's, there's a culture that's here in Colorado. It, I remember when I first moved to Colorado, I am not an outdoors person. But the, the over... Very true. <laughs> The overwhelming, the overwhelming press of Colorado culture was compelling. It was like, there are these rituals that we do. We go camping on the weekends. We hike the incline at ungodly hours of the morning, you know. And I tried because I want to belong to this culture. I, I want to partake of these communal rituals, you know. Uh, we drive, we're going to drive somewhere in the fall to see the leaves turn colors, you know. Because this is what we do. It's rituals. Um, I think you could probably think of examples, Aaron, interrupt any time about from the church uh, world. The third word is artifacts. Um, this is, this is a, again, maybe more of an anthropology sort of word, but like an artifact, a cultural artifact. But think of this. When you're studying a culture, you're, eventually you're not going to get very far before you start studying the things that they make, right? You know, oh, look at this art. 
look at this drawing, look at this spear, look at this engraving, look at this letter, okay? So what are the artifacts that churches make? It could be as simple as we do Wednesday night prayer. That's a cultural artifact that your church has made, but it, be, it, it becomes a piece that shapes your church's culture. So you, if you say, I want to be a praying church, but you don't schedule a weekly prayer meeting, guess what? You're not going to be a praying church, right? You say, oh, we want to be like people of the word, but you don't create any artifacts where the word is actually being studied or taught. Like, you're not really gonna, that's not really going to be embedded in your culture. It may be embossed on a nice banner, but it won't be embedded in your culture. What's the artifact that you're creating to represent this? And maybe something that, that exemplifies actually that and the story part of all of this um, is, I think, in the church, to translate that even into the church world more specifically, one of the artifacts would be people and people's stories and life transformation. So, So are we highlighting in some form or another, there's lots of ways to do that, are we highlighting in some form or another the artifacts, the, the wins, if you will, the, the celebration of this is what we are doing. Yeah. And this life represents what we are about. And right. I think sometimes we say we're about something, but then we do something else. Or we say oh, we're this kind of church, but then we do yeah. something else. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think everything um, has the potential to be an artifact that represents. Okay, so even the artifact, the word art is in it. So... Why, why would a church write songs and record an EP? I mean, you could, you could, especially in this day and age, you could say, oh, dude, like, we'll never be Hillsong. So let's just all quit, right? We'll never be, Chris Tomlin's not on my payroll, so let's just quit right now. Let's not even bother to write songs. Let's just sing Chris's songs. Just what the, most of the world does. But um, no offense, Chris is great. Um, <laughs> but... Why, why even bother? Why do it? Why write for your church in Boston, Kevin? You know, why do this? Because when you write a song that your people know you wrote while you were worshiping with them, that's a cultural artifact right there. You've just created art that now embeds culture in it. So when we sang Overcome this morning, it may, that song may not mean anything to anybody else. That song may be, you make, it may make most people think of Jeremy Camp and his, his voice singing, and you, we will over, right? But, but for us, when we sing Overcome, I can't help but think about meeting on a Wednesday night in a packed living room after the shooting happened at New Life, singing with tears in our eyes like, this is our story. That's a cultural artifact that carries culture now. It, it, that's, that's embedded in us. So when John stands up and says, our worship culture at New Life is that we proclaim things that, that are the true reality. I know what that means. We do that every Sunday. You see what I'm saying? We've created artifacts that house that culture. Sorry, I got a little emotional there. Uh, let's see. I'm sure I had one more word. There it is. Uh, language. I do think one of the challenges uh, in, in my situation of shifting culture at New Life, um, one, it's a slow thing to shift at a, a church this size. And um, a big part of it is, is language. Um, I have a friend at, at Willow Creek who says, he who asks the question controls the meeting. So if the question is, how many people showed up? All of a sudden... 
that language has now shaped the culture of that meeting. We're now like, oh, so this is how we measure, you know. But if the question, let's say on the different lens, um, did we feel like the Spirit of God moved? Okay, maybe, maybe it's an intangible question. It doesn't matter. The point is he, who, he or she who asks the question controls the meeting. Language really, really matters. So the language of our church really matters. I think somebody on the team, even if it's not the senior leader, somebody on the team needs to, like, love words. Because words are not just words. They're not, they're not throwaway. It's not like, yeah, we could call ourselves a community or a connect nexus, you know. Like, no, let's think deeply about this. Because language matters. Language really, eventually, part of, I mean, listen, again, anthropology hat, you're not, you don't get very far in studying a culture before you realize what's their language. How, what, what, how do they communicate with one another, you know? So sometimes things will get part of the language. You're like, for many, many years, part of the language at New Life was the disc test. I'm an ID who turns into a C when I'm tired, and there, she's an S, and, you know, like, people are like, what, what are you talking about? You know, it doesn't matter. But, but for us, that's part, that became part of the language. Or, you know, um, for me at, at New Life Downtown, the table and the language around the table has become very, very important. So we don't just talk about worship, connect, serve, because like Aaron says, every church has worship and connection and serving, right? That's not to, that's not to dog on it. But I need something, I need a language that is more powerful than those words. I need words that carry more potency than those words. And so we say at New Life Downtown, blessed, broken, given. Instantly there's a story connected with that language. Three stories, all in Luke's gospel, of Jesus with the 5,000, Jesus at Passover, Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, sitting at a table, taking the bread, blessing it, breaking it, giving it. This all of a sudden, this, this language all of a sudden takes me to a place. It orients me to the table and how communion becomes the climactic moment of every worship service that we do at New Life, north and downtown. All of a sudden, the language takes me to place, takes me to story, and carries culture. So this is a, sometimes it becomes a little bit of a, uh, annoying to some people um, that in our staff meetings, I will bring up, hey, uh, you, so-and-so did announcements last week. Will you, when you said this, and, and it might actually seem like, my goodness, Aaron, you're a control freak, you know, like <laughs> micromanaging the words. Uh, but I'm not because, you know, like for instance, one of the words that I don't like is you. When a pastor or on a platform says, well, when you go to pray, let's say. No, when we go to pray. In other words, I am part of you and you are part of me. Therefore, it is we. So, so, so it's very simple. Instead of using you, use we. I try to do that when I, when I preach. You know, it's not a, this is me giving you the, the scriptures. This is me and us together learning the scriptures. I just happen to be the guy on the platform communicating about it. The other thing is, like, especially from the beginning, this is a lot easier, again, to, as opposed to like, okay, we're going to throw this word out. Yeah. We don't have words to throw out unless somebody else has brought it from some other place, right. been trained or conditioned by some other church or some other past experience. But one of the things that we've tried to do is to really embrace the language of family. Mm. And I think so often in our culture... American culture, church is a place that you go or a building that you enter rather than a family that you belong to. So 
So we use the word belong, we use family. We don't like to call our church a church, like welcome to church. We say welcome to the house, and we're gathering because if you, if you, some people like to call it an experience. I don't like calling a worship service an experience because to me, experiences are things that you buy. You can go to... Consumer language, yeah. Yeah, it's consumer language. You go to Disney and you have a experience. But when we come together as a family, we gather. And so if I'm ever curious about some of the language, I just think about my house. What do I do with my family at Christmas time? What do I do with my family around the dinner table? And use that language because you might say, isn't it just semantics? Words mean things. Words, uh, language shapes imagination. Imagination shapes action. So when I say something like, um, welcome to the house, it brings up some sort of imagination, some sort of idea versus we're so glad that you're here in our service, <laughs> which I don't like that. You know, I mean, all of a sudden that's, it's not, it's not our service, it's his service. And so, so to, it may seem a little micromanagey, <laughs> but it's caught on. Now I love it when somebody emails me and we're like, I just love being a part of our house, yes. you know, and and now they're using family language because being a part of a house means that I might go to it, but I'm also still part of the family when I'm not in it. Right. So, Dude. Which is, is a great illustration of language can often work within a, gover- a governing metaphor. You know, now the scripture is full of metaphors for the, for the church. You, you can choose it, the body, the temple, the family, the, ho- the household, the oikos. But you, 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 can, you can choose in, in some ways which one fits your culture, maybe even fits your context of the city that you're in. You, you might be, I mean, it, I, I imagine, okay, if we were pastoring in Manhattan and most of the people there are 20-somethings who have not been with family, maybe family language has no um, resonating power. Uh, maybe hypothetically, let's say, but 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 maybe there's another metaphor that that language can help fit. There there is the whole point is be intentional about your language, because language is is what shapes um, the culture. And I agree with you. It is amazing when you hear people using it. You know, like um, just the other day we were having our meal group um, kind of launch thing. You know, so okay, so for us, so even groups, right? It's not just groups. It's meal groups. Why? Because everything's about the table. It's the Lord's table and then your table. That's pretty simple. You know, it's not rocket science. So this guy's talking to me. He's, he's uh, saying that he's um, about to go take a position at a different church, and his son is in his young 20s and lives here. And, and he's like, dude, I, my, my son asked me, like, what the church philosophy or culture is that I'm going to. And I tried to explain it to him. It's like I was talking for, like, 20 minutes, and I had, like, a bunch of diagrams. And it's like I couldn't quite explain it to him. And I, I decided to ask him, like, what about New Life Downtown? And he's like, oh, Dad, it's blessed, broken, given. It's like we gather to, at the Lord's table, and then we gather around our tables, and then we go prepare a table for others in the world. So, oh, wow. Okay. And, and he, tell, he told me the story, and I was like, yes, 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 yes. My sermon may have been terrible today, but that is what I celebrate, you know? Like when language starts to stick. Um, of course, we're only a couple years in. We'll see. Ask me later. Um, All right, Stern, over to you, man. Um, So I'd love to give, maybe I have a, I wrote down a list of some different things. And some of this comes from a a book. There's a book called um, Natural Church Development by a, uh, it's it's kind of a science nerdy stat book. Um, And it was, it was a study and a survey done by a guy named Christian Schwartz. 
Um, I read it right before we planted, actually for the second time. We didn't plant for the second time, but I read it for the second time. And, <laughs> and, and, and he does like hundreds of thousands of surveys of churches and church members all over the world. And essentially uh, boils down into some common themes and threads of some churches that are growing. And growth in and of itself isn't the only uh, variable or a factor in terms of whether or not a church or a culture is life-giving, but I'd like to think that life-giving ch- culture has a greater chance of growth than a life-sucking culture. And, and so, so I think that there may be some, some bigger ideas and then some, some also so there's some practicality within this list. And so um, I, I kind of reworked the list a little bit. I think he has eight, but I have seven. Um, Seven's the perfect number, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and so, so some of these might seem a little simple, but I think that they're worth stating. Um, so one thing that he found was that there was, any, there, was an, there was an authentic passion for Jesus. And, and you might say, well, of course, I mean, isn't that real? But I think that there's something valuable about understanding that, that, that there is a true and authentic passion and love, not just a passion for him, not just zeal, but an authentic love for him and the ways in which um, we as leaders have to lead that. I, when Glenn was the worship leader for me at the mill, which is the name of the college ministry that we led, um, I, I loved being in worship with him. And as much as he was on the platform leading worship, I also knew that I'm sitting here, standing here leading worship with him because some, a lot of people are looking at me. Right, and I think there's something about the way that we worship and the ways that we engage in that way. Glenn mentioned prayer just a little bit ago. Um, if we call a prayer meeting, say that it's important for our people to pray, I think that we need to be the ones that are either there or leading it. <laughs> I mean, what kind of, um, kind of example are we setting in terms of the, the, um, the, the, the passion and the, and the love for Jesus. Is it authentic? And maybe a better way of saying this, and even just saying this is, applies to all of it, but is, I, I think I've realized this more than ever in having planted our church, is that the culture of your church and will, is, is most determined by the leader. And we might say, like, bristle at that a little bit because we might think, well, that sounds like a cult of personality or it sounds like that's a one, you know, all driven by the, the, the man or something like that. But there is just, there is something about uh, the life and the heart and the passion and the direction that a leader goes that people follow. I mean, there's a way in which that is going to uh, translate and trickle down. And so, to kind of back up from my, my list here, I think there's something to ask after a while if you're unhappy with the culture of your church. At some point, I think you have to look back and say, it maybe is it me? Because, because people will do what you, people will hear and learn what you say. They'll hear it and maybe grasp it intellectually. It's like our kids. They'll hear what we say, but they ultimately do what we do. And, and I think the same thing is true of our, own, of our churches. And, and again, I think it goes back to a lot of the relationship and family language that as the father in the house, the, the dad in the house, if you will, that there is something about what is in your own heart and in your own life that translates. And so after a while, if, 
changing this, tweaking that, adjusting that, redoing this, rehiring this, all that, and you still end up kind of in the same place with the same culture, eventually I think it's worth turning around and saying, is this what's in me? Do you want to say anything no, about no. that? Got seven things <laughs> I do. <laughs> all right. So, um, so not only are we passionate about Jesus, what are we doing to develop an authentic love for Jesus? And so... Um, Developing a self-feeder, I think, is one of the things that we need to be doing as part of the culture of our churches. Um, number two is ministry centered around people's gifts. In other words, I think one of the, one of the things early on in our church, even before we started, I had people that would come to me and say, so uh, what are you going to do about this? What's your outreach going to look like? Where are you gonna, what are you going to do for the youth of your community? How are you going to make sure to address, what are you going to do on a global level? What are you going to, and all these things. And I thought, I don't even know where we're going to meet. <laughs> like, how am I going to know any of these things? And it's not just that I haven't had the space or I haven't gotten to that place to think about those things. I really, I really couldn't know those things yet because I didn't know who was going to be a part of our church. In other words, I didn't know what was we were going to be doing as a church because I didn't know the giftings that were going to be a part of it yet. Right. And so I think it's valuable as a leader to sit down and, okay, what are we going to do and what do we want to be about and kind of dream a little bit, ask the Lord, of course, some, some direction. But I don't think that we can really settle those things until the people are in the house. Mm -hmm. till, and, and so as a result, when somebody comes to me and says, hey, do you have this? Oftentimes, my response to, well, if we don't, will be no, but I think we're about to, <laughs> because you're here now. And I think that it's important for us to recognize that as, as leaders, um, everything that we need is already in our church. And, 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 so, and they're in the people that are sitting in the chairs or in the pews. And, and so if, yeah, sorry, if we're in a place where we feel like it's all about what I want to do and everything that I've got in my heart and I've just got to recruit everybody to do my thing, then we're going to end up trying to put people in slots. My goal is not to put people in slots. My goal is to find out what's inside of them and that God has put in them and give them opportunity for that. There was a guy, there's a guy at our church and he, um, early on, I found out more about him and all that stuff and I said, hey, we're, would you mind doing this thing? One of the things that, it, because of this, that I want to do is help people find out what their giftings are. What's, what's, their, what's their giftings? What, are you, what it was God designed you to do? And he, is, he does this on a business level as part of his business, but um, on a leadership level, secular thing. But I thought, what if this can translate for him into help, helping people discover their spiritual gifting? So we talked and worked through that together. And he came to me, or no, his wife talked to my wife and said, said uh, Richard came to me the other night and he, he had tears in his eyes because Aaron asked him to do something that fit exactly with what was inside of him. And she said, the last church that we had been a part of a while back, um, he always felt like a mule. And it was just the pastor kind of putting his stuff on top of him and saying go, rather than finding out who he was, giving him some good lanes to run in, but saying, you go run, run like a stallion. And I think, I think we need more mindsets like that as leaders and pastors within a church. And, and I think, honestly, I think you and me are good examples of having had people do that for us. Well, I mean, what Brady's done with me, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
Anything else you want to say? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> got five more points. It's true. It's true. Okay. Um, number three is an empowering environment. So similar kind of uh, follows along with that, but giving people opportunity to think through things um, instead of um, uh, we want to create an, encur- uh, an environment of encouragement, you know, um, whether it be leading in a, in, a, in a city group. I remember this was back when in the mill days, there was a guy who came to me and we call our small group city groups. And there was a guy who came to me and he said, uh, I want to lead a small group. And, uh, and, I, and I, you know, it's one of those things where you look at them and you're like, ooh, no, this is not going to go well. <laughs> and, and I said, okay, great. What do you want it to be about? Now, he had a passion for uh, like dance music, electronica, and all that kind of thing. And he says, so I want to do a little group about that. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, great. And so he started his group, and the first week there was seven people, the next week there was two, and the, every week after that there was zero. And, <laughs> and, you know, oh, wow. and, and you might think, well, that's a failure. Except for that, after all that happened, he came to me and he said, Aaron, I don't understand why nobody's coming to my group. Can, maybe, can you maybe can help me and coach me and all of that? I'm fairly convinced that if I had said no from the get-go before he'd even tried, that he would ever have even asked why or been receptive to why. And so I think that there's an element of giving people run, and this is the thing, and I, I actually I think I can say this for myself. You can back this up because I think this is true. When I was given the opportunity to lead the college ministry here at New Life Church, I had never done anything in terms of leading a service or a ministry or shown any sort of uh, public speaking. Actually, I was a terrible public speaker. That's not true. The only reason the college ministry survived is Glenn Packham. Glenn Packham carried. That is also not true. <laughs> Glenn Packham carried the mill on his back for two years like while a I meal. learned. <laughs> well, I learned how to how to speak. But it's one of those things. Like if some somebody may hit a a single, some people might hit a home run. And if we're, we're, we're scared of them striking out, we may never find the person who hits a, a single, double, triple, or a home run. And, and so I think that we need to be, we need to be permission granting versus permission withholding. Um, that the, it, may not, it may be yes, but not now, right. but it's still yes. Or yes, but let's talk about uh, how that might look. You know, so it's not just carte blanche, do whatever you want to do, go for it. You know, I'm not going to create any boundaries. I'm not going to train you. I'm not going to be and give you an encouragement or training or anything like that. So um, let me say one thing about yeah. that. I, I, I think it is important, you know, part of, part of the culture thing and however you want to take Aaron's word of a leader being the, a primary voice in shaping the culture. I think it's hard to escape from that, escape from that. I think part of the role of stewarding culture is being able to say no. Mm-hmm. But I, I, so I don't think Aaron is saying don't say no. I think he's saying you find empowering ways of saying yes that don't always include here. So, so some, a lot of times people will have great ideas and great gifts, and they'll want to say this needs to be an official program of the church. And you have to say yes, but not as our thing. Yes, within our church, but it's not a new life thing. You know what I mean? And I, I mean, I mean we're, we're only two and a half years in, but there's a plethora of, people, of situations like that. Man, I have this burden. I want to start like a men's camp out thing. Can I, you know? It's like, man, that is an awesome vision. But that, we do meal groups and we do Sundays. Everything flows in, in, into that or out of that. We serve the city and we serve our community, but that comes out of meal groups. So if you have a passion for like a John Eldridge Band of Brothers mountain retreat twice a year, Go on and lead it, and I will cheer you on. 
but it's not a new life retreat. You know what I mean? It's like a yes, but not here, or yes, but not. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I and mean, I, you agree with that. You I can't say 100% yes. I 100% agree with that. I, I, I mean, my other session tomorrow, I'll give you a little shameless plug, is killing the staff-driven church. In other words, like, I don't, I don't think that all the ideas should come from me or somebody who gets paid. Mm-hmm. And that idea, a John Eldridge campout thing, it's a great idea. Uh, one of the things that we want to do is just try and put it into a place that's going to fit for yeah. them and everybody else so that it's in some ways has a better chance of succeeding within the community. Yeah. Well, c- culture, I mean, the one, one more image for you with culture is cultivation. And cultivation is, is like gardening. You know, so a, a big part of gardening is saying what things can't grow here. You know, so you're saying, I'm not saying no to your gifts. I'm just saying no to your gifts in this garden box. Right? I'm saying yes to your gifts. Go ahead and use your gifts in the community, you know? I mean, I think there's also part of this thing of like, well, I need to use my gifts, and that means I need to preach on Sunday mornings, you know? Say, that's not going to happen, but I see the gifts in you. Go ahead and lead it over here. This is your garden box, but this is ours. I don't know, maybe. um, Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, Number four is functional structures. And really, this is, you know, fairly simple, but at the same time, I think we understand it. We can think about the government. <laughs> you know, uh, the purpose and the idea is right, but sometimes the, the track to get there will kill you. And so, so making sure that the, the systems serve the people, not people serving the systems. Um, number four, or five, excuse me, I love this, have fun. I, I think sometimes we read the Bible and hear and read Jesus stories and we read them very much through a series. We should be obviously have an awe and a reverence towards Jesus, but I think Jesus was a, I think he had a lot of fun. And there was a seriousness and a weight to what he had, what he did, but I think there was a lot of um, laughing and talking around the campfire and a lot of things that um, were there. So I, I think that there's an important question to even ask, like, how much fun do I have on a Sunday? I love Sundays. So for me, Sunday mornings are so fun. I think that it is so amazing to see so many wonderful people and get to gather together and worship together and celebrate Jesus together and, and come to the table together. It is amazing. I just could not have more fun in on a Sunday morning. And and oftentimes, I hear that from different people within the church. I was talking to a college student the other day, and she said, I've never been a part of a church like this, where I, like, want to be there. <laughs> you know, like, she, like I, I would go before because I had to, or I knew I was supposed to, or I knew it was good for me, and, but I want to go. I can't wait to go, and I want to be, I want to serve. And man, it's, think of our house. I want my kids to love our house. I want them to love our house when they don't have to be there. And part of the reason or one of the ways that they're going to love that is if it's safe, I think if there's an element of fun, it's not just entertainment. Well, yeah, there's a caveat to that, with, which is that we all know that there are leaders who manipulate mm. and use fun as a way to say, I want you to love this place so you never leave. I mean, it's kind of like the... Um, uh, it's like uh, the Truman Show, you know? Like, don't discover that you're on a set. Like, no, you have everything you need here. This is great. This is it. This is all, why would you want to leave? This is awesome. This is so fun. And, you know, in a dysfunctional home, you would have a parent that's like, the dad comes home and every day is ice cream day. Every night is ice cream night, you know, because I just want you to love it. It's ice cream night, you know? Uh, that's, that's manipulative. But there, but, and I think, thank God, people have a stronger, you know, 
excuse can I say this, a BS meter? <laughs> can I say that at yeah. a church conference? I think, I think people have a stronger radar for when you're just manipulating them to, to love church and be happy. Because sometimes, look, I love Sundays, but sometimes, sometimes it's hard. And sometimes I can tell that people are tired. And so I don't want to be like the peppy cheerleader that's always yeah. like, hey, you go, come on, don't you love me? And you're not, you know? um, at the same time, there are ways to, to add some fun to it. We just went to two services on Sunday, and one of our volunteers was like, let's buy a bucket of yellow stress balls, and let's throw them in the hallway so that people know that even if someone drops a ball or two, that it just doesn't matter, you know, that it's like, who cares? And I thought it was the dumbest idea ever. <laughs> I was like, this is so cheesy. This is so cheese ball, you know? And, and if I were to do it, I would be like trying to be the manipulative peppy CEO at the Apple conference or something, you know, like, rah, new iPhones for everyone, you know? Um, <laughs> But it was his idea, and he pulled it off because it was authentic for who he was. And it really did help. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, it's, yeah, it worked. I made fun of him, but it worked. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, and I, and I, yeah, definitely not trying to communicate, just create a happy plastic mm-hmm. cotton candy face. But, but there, is something about, there is something about the church being a place. I think there's joy in rest. Yeah. So what, what kind of... What kind of fun, maybe fun isn't even the best yeah, word. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> this is very Packham to be challenging me while I'm communicating. <laughs> I don't know, I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah, it's a nice idea, Aaron. Um, number six uh, in, in these churches was, was to authentically love people. Authentically. There's a lot of pastors that love crowds and they don't love people. Mm. Mm. That's good. <laughs> and, and so I think there's something so important about making yourself available to people. I, um, I think that one of the things that I do, we're two and a half years old, we have almost 1,100 people coming to our church, and, and I still do the visitors on, on, individually on Monday afternoon. And it's because I want people to know I don't just hand off everything and all I do is kind of sit back in my study and... and create a message and show up on a Sunday morning and then vanish back into the, into some sort of catacomb or something. And, and, and certainly there's dynamics, there's social dynamics, all those types of things where you can't know everybody and all that kind of thing. But I just want people to know that I'm available. Mm. And, and I recognize that I can't do, uh, I can't do everybody's wedding. I can't do everybody's funeral. I can't meet with everybody. I can't counsel everybody. I can't do everybody's premarital counseling. But I, what I will do is do for one what I can't, what I wish I could do for everyone. And so, so I think there's something really important and valuable to make sure, do we really love people? And, and a lot of that is actually communicated in some of our very detail-oriented, small ways. Yes. Do we answer phone calls? <laughs> do we respond to emails? Um, I continually am encouraging my team, write thank you notes. You know, yes. mail, <laughs> mail is kind of becoming the, actually, uh, I think we birthed, I think we heard this from Eugene Peterson, and he said he said communication in different variations is becomes cheap. In other words, an expensive quote unquote takes time, takes paper, takes a stamp. Is an expensive uh, form of communication is a letter. In other words, if you received a handwritten letter from someone, it means a lot more than if they shoot you a text. And I think that there's something for us to recognize that 
if I write a note or a letter to someone, I'm actually, I can communicate love and value to them in a way that maybe isn't quite the same as if I just shoot them an email or mention them on Twitter. Right. That's true. I would retweet that though, if you said. <laughs> That's also true. <laughs> and the other thing is, and the last one, number seven, is a relentless pursuit to reach others. In other words, and this is, to me, this is a tension. It's a massive tension within the church, and specifically here in America. We still live in a culture where a non-believer or a seeker will come into a church building. So Sunday mornings, we have to at least be aware of that. I'm not saying that we need to make Sunday mornings all about the non-believer and kind of forget the believer, but I'm also, I would also encourage that we don't make Sunday mornings only about the believer and forget completely about the non-believer. And so the tension... I'm going to talk about that in my Thursday session. Just a little plug there. (laughs) And so the tension to me is between the family and and relationship and and those who are not yet in the family. One of the ways that I like to say this at Mill City is we have a passion for family, but we also have a passion for lost kids. I, I have four sons. My oldest is 12. His name is Parker. And when he was about seven or eight, maybe, we went to a birthday party at the Denver Aquarium. And we went on a Saturday on a hot summer day. And so us, along with so many other people, were, were out at the, in the picnic area outside um, during the lunch hour. So, I mean, a big, huge area full of people. And we kind of marked off our little area. And we had, it was me and several other dads and several kids. And, and so we're sitting there in a crowd of people. And we're eating lunch. And I'd look up. And there was Parker playing with his friends. And, and then I'd eat a little bit and look up. And I'd see him. And then I, one time I did that. And I looked up and I didn't see him. So then I'm like, oh, they must have moved. So then I stand up and I kind of scan the area where we all were, our, you know, the our section. And I didn't see him. And then I got up and I walked the area and I still didn't see him. And about that time, I went into parent panic mode because there's people everywhere. And and then I started saying to my close friends who were right there, hey, can you go, go that way and look for Parker? I can't find him. I'm going this way. Can you go that way? I'm going. And we were, I mean, it becomes this moment of urgency to recognize we got a lost kid. It's probably five minutes, which felt like five years. Before I found Parker, he'd gone around a corner and was, was playing in these fountains. And when I found him, he, you know, he's acting as if nothing has happened. And I'm thinking, years just fell off my life in the last five minutes. <laughs> and during those five minutes, I never thought, oh, you know, Jossie, my wife, was still at home. And, and I, there was nothing in me that thought, oh, it's going to be no big deal. I mean, if I can't find him, I, I mean, we've got three others. <laughs> or we'll make another. So, so, of course, I love those three. Of course, I love the family that's there. But there's something about this urgency that's also aware of the lost, the lost kid. And there's a tension. It's kind of like maybe another picture is you ever go to a party and or you're invited to a party and you're, maybe you're new to the group or new to something. And you go to the house and the doors open or something like that. But all the activities happening in the kitchen. And man, it is, you can hear the noise, everybody's talking, it's really, really fun. I personally think that in our church, at Mill City Church, there's an amazing party going on in the kitchen. There's a wonderful, uh, we're sharing, we're breaking bread together, we're sharing life together. I mean, there is a beautiful family that's been and continues to be formed at Mill City Church. But 
some, somebody invited somebody to come in the door and they came in the door and it's like they don't see their friend right away that they had that invited them and and you ever have I don't know about you but I kind of am like if I'm ever in that situation I walk in I'm like oh should I do I belong here can I get out of here you know like am I in the right house you know I got the guac but you know but if somebody from the party from the kitchen comes over and says oh hey oh you must be John's friend I'm so glad you're here why don't you come in let me introduce you all of a sudden you've bridged that gap and you don't want to shut down the party going on in the kitchen, but you also don't want to close the front door. And I think that we live in that tension. And I, I think it, attention is the right word because I think it has to be both, and they pull on each other. And, and, we've, and we've got to make sure that we don't um, swing honestly to either side only, um, but are aware of that tension that we live in as, as people, and specifically as people, the people of God. So those are the seven. That's really good, man. That's really, really good. I think we have 15 minutes. I want to do questions in a minute, but I just want to say a couple things. Um, uh, the thing about New Life Church, and I, uh, there's a limit to how much I can say because uh, it's a work in process, but I want to get to this one line Andy Crouch has a great book called Culture Making, and the takeaway from the book is that the only way to change culture is to create more of it. In other words, you don't really change existing culture. You crowd it out by creating more. Okay, so why is it? Oh, that's awesome. That is amazing. Woo! That was awesome. That's worth the price of admission right there. Um, man. Grab my phone and the whole bottle slid. Um, why is it that we don't carry planners anymore? Well, look at you. We are. Why is it that we don't carry planners anymore? Did someone say, I'm going to create a culture, I'm going to change the culture of, of calendars and planners? Nope. Nobody said that. Why is it that we don't have cassette players or CD players? Did someone say, I need to change the culture of how music is bought and consumed? Nobody said that. What you did is you created a new artifact. And by creating a new artifact, you created a new culture. And this culture crowded out the old culture. And now no, nobody has a phone with a cord, like Brady was talking about this morning. Nobody has a, you know, do you see the point here? So many of you at, at churches, and you're like, man, we just, we need to, I'm new on the team, but this church has been going well. I don't know how we change this culture. You don't change culture. You create new culture. And as you create new culture, it begins to crowd out the old culture. It's, it's, it's kind of how it works. And so I think, I think part of that, even in my experience here at New Life, is not to, you don't take things on head on. You say, let's, let's deconstruct this language. or let's, you, Really, you just stop using certain language and you start using new language. And before you know it, everybody's using that language. And you didn't head on say, I don't like that language. Do you see what I'm saying? That's right. But you just, you've, you've created new culture all of a sudden. Um, it's, it's, I mean, you can think of, of, of so many examples of this. Thank you, bro. I feel like we're getting a baptism here or something. You know? <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to think of, um, of like a specific example of this, okay? But 
let's say, okay, one of, the, one of the shifts, for example, for us at New Life as a whole, both north, uh, main campus, and uh, downtown, is the shift to weekly communion. Now, how do you make a cultural shift like that? That is under the, the um, stories, artifacts, language. It's ritual, isn't it? It's, common, it's communal practices. So in creating new culture, we say, I don't know if I'm, I, I like the culture that we've been where it's, it feels oriented to the man or the woman who's preaching, and it's the sermon, and the sermon is the big culmination moment, and then the culmination of the sermon is, is a sort of decision, and so that's the build-up, you know. You say, well, I don't know if I like that culture. That culture puts so much pressure on the speaker, or that culture makes it about the man, or that culture. Okay, so what do you do? Do you just say, we have a staff retreat and say, how do we change that culture? Well, you know, it's not my heart to be person-centered, and, but it is the Word of God. You know, what do you do? You introduce a new ritual that knocks the old one off-center. Okay, so part of the thing for me, I was terrified of becoming the center of the Sunday night service. And for me, part, part of the reason of including liturgy was to knock the human off-center. And I know our friendship is, is strong enough that, you know, I'm not, I'm not quibbling with what you say, but I want to present the other side of it. And your, the, the statement about, like, the leader shapes the culture, I totally get that in a leader-driven model. And most of, many churches are leader-driven, and there's nothing evil about that. But I want to remind us that there are many, many churches, and for hundreds of years were churches, where it didn't matter who the vicar was or who the priest was. Why didn't it matter? Because the ritual trumped the, the person. Do you see what I'm saying? So now, how did we change church culture? By, by knocking the ritual off of center and putting in the person. I'm, again, I'm not saying this is evil. I'm just telling you this is how cultures are changed, is by creating new ones. So I'll say in my Thursday morning general session how the frontier revivals of early American history totally changed church culture by creating a new service order. It basically created a new artifact. And the new artifact was a service order that was warm-up, word, altar call. Charles Finney, he called it the new methods, okay? But for 1,700 years, the service order was baptism, word, prayer, table. Bath, word, prayer, table. Bath, baptism. That was the fourfold service order. Now, is it bad? We can debate this. Was Finney wrong? I mean, should we, is the threefold service order inherently more wicked than the fourfold service order? I don't know. But my point is, if you want to change it, you don't take it on head on. You create something new. So we introduced a communal ritual of weekly communion to knock the preacher off of center a little bit. So... To counter, <laughs> we're never going to get to well, Q and I mean, in yeah. some ways, I, I I agree completely with you, except for that that came out of you. I mean, in this in this particular context at this moment, I mean, you are the one, and that is, I know that everything you're saying is completely authentic, right? And comes out of everything that you just described. Now, I understand, but it's but it's like it's like the leader choosing to put on a straitjacket. Do you know what I'm saying? Like so it becomes yeah. the last most powerful decision you will ever make. 
But, and maybe another way of saying this is that within our culture, which is very self-centered, what you just described had to be driven by a leader within the context in which you are. Sure. And, and the, 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 come on, come on. (laughs) Ritual, ritual, ritual. I'm not anti-ritual. I mean, for instance, for instance, so, so at our, at, at, at Mill City, we write, we every week will say, uh, the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed or say a, a psalm together or something. And I was in a church not too long ago where they did none of that. We, and we bring our lights up during worship because this is why. I'm convinced any, we can have our own personal times with God in our cars and in our bedrooms and by ourselves all week long. Yes. There is only one time when we all gather together and it's on a Sunday morning in the house. Yes. I want to make sure that when we sing, we're not just providing another individual worship experience. Yes. But instead, I'm providing a communal worship experience. So we turn the lights up so we can see the other people we're worshiping with. Magnificent. That's great. And, and we say the Apostles' Creed and the etc. together so that we're saying something together. Because we can say what we want by ourselves all the time. Right. So all that to say that. Right. But those, those are rituals that decenter people off Absolutely. of the middle. Yeah. 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 And, and I, I think, I think <laughs> however... How, However you do it, however you do it, the point... The, the this large, is nothing for Glenn and I, by oh, the way. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, larger point, the larger point is you don't change culture by taking it head on. You create something new. You create a new practice. We're going to turn the lights up. You do weekly communion. You, uh, you say the creed. Whatever the practice is, you create something new. And I'd like... Go ahead. I would like to say as well, on top of that, that, that oftentimes those shifts aren't going to be dramatic. I mean, adding communion might feel a little bit dramatic, but it's not that dramatic. And, and what I mean by that is when I went to this church where they, recently where we, there was no, no corporate um, saying. The only thing that was corporate was the singing, but there was no corporate scripture reading or anything like that. I to, I, it was amazing how disconnected I felt from the congregation. Yeah. Now, I never on a Sunday morning when we say the Apostles' Creed or something like that together never feel like this, like, goose bumpy. I feel so connected and like, so like together There's, you know, experiential kind of thing. Cause, it, cause really two and a half years of that, it's, it's a slow shift. Right. And, and it, and I don't re- think I realized the impact and the way that it had set culture within my own heart and life until I went to a place that didn't have it. Right. Right. So I, I think one of the first big steps in, in many ways for us as a church was to introduce a new, a new practice. And it, it did begin to change the shape of the culture here. I, I, I mean, you heard Pastor Brady this morning. Did he say it this morning? Uh, where he says, we preach toward the table. Maybe he just said that in our lunch. Or did he say it yeah, in the first session? Um, we preach toward the table. What does that mean? We'll, we'll talk more about that tomorrow in our, in our sessions together, he and I and, and Daniel. But, but again, that's a practice that now is shaping culture. So uh, if, if in your context, one of the things you can think about is to say, how do I begin to create something new here? And this is where, Aaron, it comes back to the point that you, said, you made. It is true. In probably 99% of our context, it is going to come back to the senior leader and to say, at some point, I either need some sort of permission to create or I need their cooperation, that they're going to lead this thing with me, you know, 
Um, but one of the brilliant things about what Brady has done is he created safe space, laboratory space. That's what the Sunday night service was for two years, was this laboratory space where it was like, okay, Glenn, I see you wrestling with something. Go ahead and test this here. And it's, it's permission to try and it's permission to fail, but it's also permission to create a new cultural uh, thing. And, and, and as it began to develop, he, you know what he said? He said, you know what? I want that to bleed into Sunday mornings. What that says to me is, you, uh, here's permission to create new culture. Now let's let that culture crowd out something else and let it bleed in to the existing culture. Does that make sense? And, and then on and on it begins to go. So if you're the senior leader, you want to think that way. Are the people on my team being given safe space, laboratory space, where they can try, where they can create something? Um, and if you're not the senior leader, if you're somewhere, you know, one level down, two levels down, whatever on the organization, you say, I don't know if I love the, this about us. I wonder how I can create something that might begin to shift it from that. Does that make sense? Okay, let's do like three questions. Here, Evan, you want to be a microphone runner? Well, it's not a question, but it's an example. A friend of mine, I go to Shiloh Chapel, and Gary Skinner is the preacher. And she asked me one day if I would be willing to pray with her after church. And then we asked Gary. And he made the announcement in church months ago, and he makes it every single Sunday now. Um, after our service, we're going to go fellowship and eat in the other room. Anybody who wants prayer, be here in the chapel. People will be here to pray with you. And that is, that's just instituted something new that seems to me like it will go on forever. And just like you say, just move, just moved in. And I don't know what's moved out, but it moved in. And it's very, very strong in our church now. We've seen a lot of amazing things happen. I know something you and I have talked about is that I think we can say for language and what we do, they're not neutral. That's right. That's right. I don't know if you want to. No, no, no. All right. You know, to recognize it's, it's not just, oh, whatever. It doesn't mean anything. What we say, how we say it. I, something I know that I've learned from Glenn, I think Glenn is maybe the best that I've ever seen at this, is the ability to translate what, uh, what happens on a Sunday morning. You know, to translate, why are we saying the Apostles' Creed and what does it mean? Why are we taking communion every week and why is it not just ritual? Why are we, why are we saying the Lord's Prayer and, and what, is, what is this about that doesn't make it just like wah, 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 wah. And, and I think there's something about recognizing there, it's, it's not neutral and, and language carries carries some significant weight to it. And if we translate to the people to which we're, I mean, there's, there's a significant way in which that, that impacts what we're doing and the people that are involved. I think you pointed to me before I even raised my hand. Um, early on, you talked about life-giving culture. Um, what is culture? Um, and the first point was shaped by stories. Can you give 
some examples of that a little bit more? I mean, you talked about like how did we begin as an example, yeah. but uh, maybe other sure things stories that- of origin are definitely again anthropology mode, right? Every culture has a story of origin. How did we become the people that we are? Churches have stories of origin, so that's obviously an important piece. But then there's also what Aaron alluded to: stories of of um, that kind of reinforce the culture. So Aaron Aaron is going to um, pay attention when people say, I didn't know uh, what it meant to belong in a family. And I came to Mill City. And you know what he's going to do with that story? Not in an exploitive way, but in a, in a very, very healthy way to say, you should share that with more people. And sometimes that might be share it with this little group. So other times that might be, why don't you record a little video story and we'll pass it on to the team. Or maybe we'll show it in church on Easter or something, you know, something like that. But, but you know, in church, we call it testimonies, right? But it's, this, it's the same idea. It's the story that helps people remember, oh, yeah, this is what's going on here. Does that help? Okay. Yeah. There's a guy right up here, Evan. Yeah, I just want to know, have you ever found yourself in a place where you were the only one that believed in the culture? Or you felt like, you know what I'm saying? Like, where you felt like you had a vision for something, and then at some point you had to realize, hey, this isn't working. Or how do you know when that's the time to walk away from it? Within an existing yeah. kind of church. Uh, I think there are many times in my own journey, and Aaron knows this very well because he's been an amazing friend to me through this. But there are many times as I was trying to sort out some of my own changing in, in thinking that I thought I just needed to get out. I was convinced that I was the crazy person, you know. I was like, maybe I'm like, just need to, this is, I'm trying to impose something that doesn't fit. Um, so, yeah, there, there are times that I, you know, when you feel that. Um, is that what you're kind of saying? Like, like you believe in, in a certain culture that should be, but you're not sure. Yeah, and, and, and honestly, there are probably a lot of people who feel that way. And, and sometimes what, what, what that restlessness, I mean, Brady talks about feeling this uh, at Gateway before planting or before coming here to New Life is the feeling of the Lord removing the feathers out of the nest, you know, where it's like a little prickly. It's like, I'm not sure if this culture feels like my home. This is not my tribe. This is not my, my, my people, you know. Well, that might be a sign. Like maybe it's time to move and, and draw this on a, on, a, on a new landscape, you know. It's time to do the spirit of America. Go and plant. Go to the new world and plant, you know. Um, or, uh, uh, you know, or you, you look for, you ask for permission to try. Can I try this in, in this kind of low-risk sort of way? Yeah, Sure. How intentional are either you guys with your staff on, uh, um, like early on? So I guess maybe Aaron maybe has better insight into this of taking something new and kind of getting it into this the the ethos of your group. Like, how intentional were you with that, or was it something that you kind of you were intentional about, but you didn't let them know it was intentional? If that makes any sense. Very. I mean, I I think that one of my primary jobs. I mean, we can easily say, oh to pastor and preach on a Sunday morning or whatever. But I would even break down some of my, especially my, specifically my leadership role, is to protect culture and build a team. And so, so sometimes we, <laughs> I, I try not to jump all over somebody and, you know, keep the staff meeting conversations if it comes to language or some way that I feel like, oh, no, uh-uh, we're not going that direction, to not jump all over them, which I don't. But, but, 
But I, I am very aware of like, oh, I don't like that. Oh, let's, let's, okay, we need to train a little bit better in this direction. So, so yeah, I'm very, very aware. Let's do this lady here just as the last one. Um, could you address the, this idea of culture in church transition? Um, I know at, from a removed perspective, there's been a lot of transition yeah. here at New Life, and um, our church is going through transition. We've been without a lead pastor for six months. We've lost three other pastors, um, and but our numbers are staying, and yeah. we're, you know, there's life. I, I will say this in, in the with with a little bit of hindsight, you know, now I and mean, Brady's been here seven years. It just takes time. And I do think in transition you do not know what yet what you will be. You know? I play on the what first John says, you know, we we anyway. We do not yet know what we will be. And um I, I don't I think even when Aaron, we were just talking about this at lunch with, with Brady and with Ross and others. Even when Aaron and, and Ross left, I mean, there's still a lot about new life that was still being remade and reshaped three, four years into Brady's time. So transitions, especially if someone's coming in from the outside, transitions are like that. You're not sure how it's all going to pan out, you know. Um, but it takes a tender heart, and it takes a lot of communication, and sometimes part of that communication is really tough conversations. Like, you, this, there's a thing that is embedded in you. Like, you embody this thing, but I don't think we're going there anymore. That's really hard, you know? And so, ha have there been transitions with, with key staff people? Yeah, there have been. Um, is it ruthless and brutal? No, not at all. It's always sad. It's always deliberate. Sometimes it's prolonged. Sometimes it's delayed. Sometimes it's like, Oof. Lord, how do we handle this? I don't quite feel like this is right, but we don't know, you know? And um, I just, I, there's not an easy answer for that, but, but it, it does take time. And it takes, it takes people continuing to risk vulnerability and invest in the relationship and see if, um, see if you're up for the new thing. <laughs> okay? Oh, yeah, wrap us up. So I, I want to say one other thing about that as well. I, for, during the transition, I think you just try not to change too much because more change is probably coming, so keep things as steady. The other thing, too, and it, certainly we see this in the Old Testament, as all of these different changes are happening through the Israelites, what carried them through it was the story of faithfulness of God, these stories of where they had come from, the stories of what happened at this place, and the stories of of. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, you know, all, and the, and the stories of the Messiah that's coming, and, you know, all these things, those are some of the things that carried them through the difficulties, and, and I think um, one of the things that is, is really valuable, not only now in the, maybe what might feel with, like the wilderness without a leader, but even when the new leader comes, and maybe especially if he's from the outside, I would just encourage you to take as much time as possible to tell stories, because, Whatever the tagline of the church is or the phrases or the values, all of that kind of stuff, there is so much story and so much history behind that that to some guy it's like, oh, I don't like that phrase. It's easy for him to just dismiss it. But, but it, and it's not to say that it has to, you have to keep it and we should fall on our sword over those things. But what if we told stories about where that 
phrase came from or why we do what we do and somehow at least creates uh, and communicates some of the value of it. So, Father, we love you and we are so grateful for uh, what you are doing in us and we thank you for your Holy Spirit which breathes life into us. And we thank you that you, uh, as you walked on this earth, you talked about a kingdom and you talked about the culture of a kingdom. And I pray that we would walk in the kingdom culture within our own lives, within our own churches, within the ways in which we interact with people, where we lead people, where we pastor people. And Father, I pray that as people talk about the churches and the organizations that we might lead, that they would talk about the work of the Spirit, not just one particular leader or something that we can control, but instead, Lord Jesus, that they would talk about that which you have breathed into it and that which brings ultimate life. So we trust you, pray blessing over every person in this auditorium in Jesus' name. Amen.